Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Lizanne Saunders joins us now, Charles Schwab Chief Investment Strategist. Lizanne, great to catch up as always. Just walk me through how uncomfortable it is just to stick with it, to stick with what's working at the moment. Well, the problem is what is working changes uh, on a week-to-week basis. You know, we, there, there was so much attention, obviously, on the um, most heavily shorted stocks and the GameStop saga, uh, almost uh, in reading headlines suggesting that this was some brand-new phenomenon. But the sort of rise of retail traders and the dominance they're having goes back to last summer. It's just that when... When you first started to see that increase in speculative activity and single stocks in the options market, it was concentrated in those leadership stocks at the time, the FANG-type stocks, the big five stocks. And then they kind of rode the rotation that really kicked into earnest in November when we got the vaccine news into the energy stocks and the financials. And for probably a variety of reasons, not least being just the sort of social media kind of driving a flash mob, it went into these more <clears throat> arcane mm-hmm. parts of the market. Now it's there, that sort of attention is coming back into more macro earnings related. So I don't know whether you're going to notice it as much. We've just been telling investors just the, the obvious. But differentiate between gambling and speculating on on stocks or areas of the market with no underlying fundamentals right. and longer-term investing. Lizanne, I'm going to bore you with my question I always ask you because I think you're better at this than anybody in the industry. What are we actually doing with our money? Charles Schwab has a knowledge of flows second to none. What are we actually doing with our money? Well, we've seen a slight waning of domestic equity uh, flows in the last couple of months. But interestingly, you're seeing a pickup in flows to markets outside the United States, which which we think is a is a good sign that the whole notion of diversification is no longer as hard to sell as it's been in the recent past. And then also at the more sector level, flows have started to pick up on the more cyclical Uh, parts of the economy, like energy, like materials, like industrials, where you're seeing some outflows out of areas like consumer discretionary and tech. So I think the flows are shifting toward this recovery focus uh, Mm -hmm. with that uh, more cyclical commodity-oriented bias. Do you think, Lizanne, that there is complacency in any corners of these markets, that the reflation trade that's underway is underpriced and that we'll continue to see inflation expectations climb as we get more stimulus packages passed? Is there any signs to you that that consensus has gone too far? Well, from an inflation perspective, we, we think we're going to uh, to see it, but it's going to be more a function of price shocks. Uh, we don't think we're, we're sowing the seeds of anything resembling a late 70s, early 80s style inflation environment, but one where you have imbalances between uh, demand and supply, uh, we think you'll see that. Plus, the comps get really easy uh, on an inflation front heading into what was the pandemic shutdown period of last year. The question is, if what point does it spook investors um, and or the Fed? Uh, I think they're going to have a decent amount of patience. The other area of complacency I worry about is the sense that 
once we're at herd immunity, getting everybody's getting vaccinated, that pent-up demand is going to be unleashed in this massive wave. I just think the nature of pent-up demand on the services side of the economy is different than pent-up demand on the goods side. And we really have met a lot of the demand on the goods side, autos, housing, housing-related. But on the services side, you know, if you, if you used to get a haircut once a month and you haven't gotten one, you go back when your salon opens and you get a, a haircut. You don't get seven of them. You don't you don't go out to, to breakfast, brunch, lunch, tea, dinner and dessert every day to make up for that lost restaurant time. You don't take six vacations in a row. So I just think we may have to curb our enthusiasm for what pent up demand means to the economy, given that it's more on the services side than the good side. Lizanne, is there some inconsistency in your view in the reflation trade that's being priced into many markets that you think is based in reality and treasure yields at less than 1.2%? Well, I think that, you know, yields where they are reflects an improving growth environment, less so a prospect for a significant increase in inflation. And ultimately, from an equity market perspective, it's not nominal yields that matter, but of course, real yields. And, and you know, that story at least being put out there by the bulls to support uh, still quite high valuations uh, at this stage uh, hasn't waned. Lizanne, good to catch up. Thanks for being with us this morning. Zan Saunders there of Charles Schwab. Right now, and this is a joy and indeed an honor for Bloomberg Surveillance, where we try to do as much as we can on this horrific natural disaster. Albert Coe is at Yale. He is definitive in epidemiology for having the courage to go where the poor are. He owns the high ground of the study of viruses and vaccines, not only in Africa, but in South America, and particularly the Brazil away from the prosperity of the big cities. Dr. Coe joins us this morning on vaccination. Albert Coe, I've got to go to the southern border of the United States. It is impoverished. It is Hispanic. And boy, those statistics are grim. Tell us about this virus, the vaccine path in the poor of America. Yeah, so, uh, Tom, thank you very much for the uh, invitation to, uh, to return on your show. Um, yeah, I think that's all on our all of our bandwidths about, um, you know, first of all, the inequitable um, and disproportionate impact that this pandemic has had on not only the poorest countries, but the poorest segments of our population. And, and that includes the, um, the impoverished in, in the South. And I think the second thing that we're worried about is, um, is, is vaccines potentially going to amplify that, in, uh, that inequity or that disproportionate burden, you know, with, um, with um, how say it, uh, with impoverished or um, uh, underserved communities having lower access to the vaccine than uh, wealthier communities. What are the best practices from other countries we can affect to get to the poor faster? So I think, I think uh, you know, I, I would hold up certain, you know, countries such as Brazil, as you mentioned, where I worked, where they have had mass vaccination programs for measles, for uh, yellow fever, and they run them effectively. I think the, the most important thing is to keep things simple. And uh, the second thing is, is to provide access and, uh, and intense, you know, numbers of clinics and vaccination sites in those communities that have um, uh, lower uptakes and less access in general. Um, in that sense, you know, countries like India, 
Brazil. They're, they're kind of models for us to, uh, to follow. Dr. Ko, uh, John referenced earlier this study showing that in the United Kingdom, one dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine offered two-thirds of the protection against getting the virus. This is very good news and indicates you're going to get an acceleration of the impact of the vaccination uh, even before the complete dose is taken. Do we have a sense of how much the vaccine has already acted as a circuit breaker to stop the pandemic? Yeah, so Lisa, so that's certainly um, promising uh, news. And, and there's, all, there's also uh, information and very good quality information coming out of places like Israel, which have been rolling out the vaccine very quickly and, and giving us a snapshot of what we, what could happen here in the United States you know, if we were to roll out um, across the population in large numbers. So at this moment, um, you know, un- unfortunately, in order to really get what we call that herd immunity effect, uh, that population level benefit of, uh, of those vaccines through either the first dose or the, and, and, uh, as well as receiving the second dose, it's going to require us vaccinating much larger numbers, much, much larger swaths of our population uh, to do that. Uh, right now, you know, we're, we're, we're still less than 10% of our country have, has been uh, vaccinated. We need to really get those numbers up much higher and much faster. And that's going to be even more important when we're thinking about the threat of variants. Do you think we need to recalibrate then to optimise the rollout, Doctor, given that the UK did roll the dice on this in many ways? I'm sure it was supported by some medical evidence, but some people pushed back at the same time about doing a one dose and then pushing out the time between the first dose and the second dose. Is that something that resonates with you, sir? Something you would endorse? Yes, I, I, uh, you know, I think, um, again, first of all, John, uh, I think we have to be humble. Um, we are going to be, we've learned a lot, you know, in a very short time about this, uh, this virus. And we're continuously learning. And as these studies come out, and particularly the UK study that Lisa said, and that makes us more confident that, you know, the policy that, that England had uh, proposed, which is giving the first shot and delaying the second shot so they can, they can immunize or vaccinate larger populations you know, larger proportion of population may be successful. Now, we're going to, obviously, you know, everyone's going to be looking at the scientific evidence as it rolls out, but it's certainly pointing that way, John. Dr. Ko, I'm a little bit reluctant to ask you this because I don't think I want to know the answer. But the post-pandemic future, coronavirus is not going away. It's probably going to mutate. That's what all of the professionals in the field say. Are we going to be maskless? What will it look like as this continues to become part of the medical backdrop of the world? Yeah, so Lisa, I think let, let me break that down into two parts, uh, the short term and the long term. Um, we know that these variants are emerging, and those variants are being fueled by mutations. And those mutations in of themselves are being fueled by mass, you know, large-scale, widespread, um, uncontrolled transmission. And as long as we're not controlling transmission, we are going to set ourselves up for continued selection of variants that potentially may escape not only natural infection or the immunity caused by natural infection, but also that uh, elicited or conferred by vaccines. And let me make a second point is, is that, you know, this can't be done just like in the UK or the United States or South Africa. It has to be done, you know, the control of transmission as a driver for these variants has to be done throughout the world. Because we yeah. know these variants can, can travel, you know, one place to the other. So that, that, that's really certainly the concern in the short run. In the long run, that means exactly, unfortunately, Lisa, your fears that, that we're going to have to keep 
to keep continuing the public health practice of masks, social gathering, um, reduction in uh, social distancing. It's going to be really difficult to reopen international travel anytime soon. Now, but thank you for your time today, Dr. Abbott Coe there of the Yale School of Medicine. Michelle Meyer joins us now with Bank of America. They've done some brilliant math. We went uh, through it with her colleague, Ethan Harris, uh, a couple days ago. Michelle, 4% GDP plus 9% GDP equals 13% GDP. You've got that big fiscal pop. Good morning, Professor Summers, up against inflation. Which breaks? Do we break inflation higher or do we get a fiscal job done? Um, so I think the way that we're thinking about it is certainly in the near term, there's a big push into the economy as a result of stimulus. There's a lot of money sloshing around there already, and more is to come. And that will generate higher consumer spending. Um, and as Mike outlined, I think quite clearly, for certain industries, there could be supply constraints, and that can exert upward pressure. But to me, to understand whether or not it's a sustainable turn higher in inflation, there's two critical components. One, inflation expectations, right? That will that will move this transitory inflation shock to something more permanent. If people reset expectations and if pricing power picks up on the business side, and again, if people are willing to spend more because they have this cash on hand um, and that kind of feeds on itself. The other critical factor is the health of the labor market. To the extent that this demand push actually helps to also heal the labor market faster, bring the unemployment rate down more quickly, that will provide a more, again, persistent um, income support for the consumer through wage growth, through labor income. We keep... Um, yeah. Well, we keep referencing this Bill Dudley column, and I want to get your view on some of the specific points within it. What he's saying will cause okay. higher inflation. One of them is he sees demand picking up at a time when supply is still reduced. You've got restaurants that have gone out of business, yep. uh, a lot of small businesses uh, that have not recovered. So given the fact that there are fewer establishments out there, they'll be able to charge more since they'll be in this influx of demand. Do you see that as a potential driver of inflation? Sure. I think that's a, a very uh, fair argument that you have an uh, imbalance where demand for certain activities picks up very quickly and you don't have the supply. We saw it actually in the reverse on the good side. I mean, think about back in the spring and summer when demand was picking up impressively for autos, for household appliances, for electronics, and there wasn't enough supply initially. And that created this kind of one-off level shift higher in prices on goods which are now reversing once uh, supply has returned. So this supply-demand imbalance should be somewhat temporary, right? The demand will pick up for something like restaurants, which was cited, and then capacity will come back online over time, and that will create uh, a little bit more of a, of a ceiling on the price pressure. So again, to make it persistent, it has to be resetting inflation expectations and driving much stronger labor fundamentals as well. The only question that matters really, Michelle, for market participants, will the Fed be bold enough to look through that burst? That burst we all anticipate at some point later yep. this year. Do you think they will be? I do. I do. I think certainly the base effects in the spring, they're ready for them. They've been talking about them. As Tom and Mike were just talking about, you know, it's just simple math when you look at the year over year comparisons. Um, and I think what they're, the Fed's going to do, rightfully so, is to look at the bottoms up analysis of inflation. 
where is inflation picking up on a sector basis? And given that, can they make yeah. the argument that it's a short-term supply issue versus something more persistent? If they get a turnaround and a you know a notable increase in some of these more trimmed mean measures or something like shelter, which is more a function of the business cycle, then they might start to anticipate a higher trend of inflation. But they're going to be looking at the components to understand whether it's transient yeah. or not. Tom, that's what's amazing about this discussion right now. The Fed is telling you what's going to happen. And it's probably yeah. going to happen. The base effects will kick in. This is what happens when well, people will re-engage with the economy as well. And they're also telling us what they will do when this happens. Yet we are still right. going to be having the same conversation yeah. for nine months. This, this goes up to the joke I made earlier about the inflationistas. Michelle Meyer, I turn to the ECI, the measurement of wages and benefits. And the key yeah. thing here is, how do you have wage inflation with Heidi Sheerholz at EPI saying 9 million bodies are out of commission? And if you extrapolate out a, a no pandemic boom, it's all more like 11 or 12 million bodies out of commission. Where where does wage inflation return? So I think that it's very hard to understand the wage dynamics right now. ECI, as you mentioned, Tom, is a preferred measure. It's better in real time than average hourly earnings. But there is no perfect measure right now because Agreed. there's been such dislocations to the labor market. And you have these compositional issues where the lower paid individuals have experienced more job cuts. And as a result, you've seen this shift in terms of aggregate income or aggregate wages. So I think in the meantime, we just kind of have to wait it out until we have a more comprehensive and full, you know, broad-based labor market recovery to properly understand these wage dynamics. Michelle, great to catch up. As always, Michelle Meyer of Bank for America Securities, head of U.S. Economics. Now it's our great pleasure to turn to the chairman and CEO of General Motors. She is Mary Barra. Mary, thank you so much for being with us. Good to see you again. Let me start by saying, barring from Queen Elizabeth, this could easily have been an annus horribilis for General Motors, given the pandemic, shutting down plants, repurposing to make ventilators. And yet it wasn't. You basically beat across the board to expectations fourth quarter and for the year. So from the inside, how'd you do it? Well, I think it was everybody coming together. It really represented the great work and the teamwork at General Motors uh, with our all of our employees, our suppliers, our dealers. We all came together to make sure we could keep our employees safe, but then also protect um, our customers and protect the business. So I couldn't be more proud of everything the team accomplished last year. As it turned out, your biggest problem was manufacturing enough, particularly those trucks and those SUVs, because the demand came back. Were you surprised how fast the demand came back? Well, you know, we have a very strong full-size truck and our full-size SUVs that we launched on time last year, even with the pandemic. And I think it just it speaks to how popular the truck is. We have very, very different models that reach different segments. And so we've been able to grow share. And we're very proud of our truck leadership. So, Mary, as you know so well, investors immediately say, what have you done for me lately? So let's look forward now to 2021, what you're expecting. You're projecting a strong year as well, even though you do have some headwinds from things like shortage of chips. Yeah, we think uh, we're going to have a very positive year uh, in 2021, not only uh, from a financial perspective, but also th the continued uh, acceleration of our EV and our AV business. We're really excited that uh, very shortly we're going to be launching the Chevrolet Bold EUV, which is a great vehicle, and that's uh, that's days away. Uh, and then, you know, uh, later this year, we'll be uh, serving the market with the GMC Hummer 
uh, EV, and then the, the Cadillac Lyric comes shortly after that, as well as tremendous progress being made from an uh, autonomous perspective as well. So we're really excited about the year, the growth opportunities that we have in front of us. Uh, and so it's a year of execution. And, you know, the, the issues with chips, this is a short-term mission, we'll work through it. Well, is General Motors basically in the same boat as everyone else, or are there things that you can do to get something of an advantage over other automakers? Well, I think in general, this is an industry issue. Of course, we're working every single day with a cross-functional team to look for opportunities of how do we minimize the impact. So we'll continue to do that. You know, we did provide uh, the guidance uh, with a, a fairly wide range, uh, and we'll, we'll work it every day and provide updates as we go forward. Mary, as you said, you've got a lot of EV models coming out, including, as you say, the Bolt EUV and the Bolt EV new model coming out. Uh, you're investing $27 billion. This is part of a multi-year plan here. Uh, as a practical matter, what are the difficulties in that plan? And particularly, I want to talk about supply chains, things like uh, battery cells, some of the lithium issues. Do you anticipate possible problems with supply chains into your battery operation? Well, I think, you know, we're um, one of only two uh, uh, automakers that are doing cell manufacture in this country. We also are doing a tremendous amount of development on our own and our own GM R&D, as well as partnering with startups and, our, of course, our joint venture with LG Chem that is development as well as production. So, you know, we're working hard to make sure we have all the cells we need and we've worked, uh, you know, through the supply base to make sure we do. Because because we are, as, as we've talked about, we're accelerating our v EVs with 30 by 2025 um, and, you know, really covering the whole market. So, you know, we continue to work it, but we think we've got a very strong plan. I, I did some rough math here. It might be wrong. But basically, if you made all of your vehicles as electric vehicles, uh, you would actually be using more than the total amount of lithium produced in the entire world by yourself. So does that mean we'll have less lithium used or are we going to find new sources of it? Well, I think, uh, you know, we're working on securing the supply that we need, but we're also working on development that uh, allows us to use less precious metals overall. So uh, it's kind of a yes and. Uh, both are, are things that we're working on. Uh, at the same time, uh, when we talk about things like the Bolt EV that's coming out, questions come up of profitability. Uh, we had Daimler, a competitor, come out and say by the end of the decade, they will be making as much or more out of electric vehicles as they do off of combustion engines. What's your profitability path for electric vehicles? Well, uh, we have uh, set a goal for ourselves to have uh, margins from our auto business be at 10%. That's not changing. Uh, we don't talk about individual product line profitability, but I can tell you with the progress that we're making because of the work we do uh, with battery development, from our, our first generation Bolt EV to when we get to Ultium, we see about a 40% improvement, and we're already working on the next generation of our Ultium technology that should take it to a cumulative 60 or more. So, you know, I'm very confident that as we move forward and continue to make advancements, not only in the cost, but in the de energy, energy density, that's going to allow us to, to have margins uh, similar that we have today as we get into the mid and later part of the decades. How much help do you anticipate getting out of the government? We have a new president now, President Biden, who says he really wants to go to emission-free vehicles in the government fleet very quickly. He, he says he basically wants to replace them all over a period of time, create one million new jobs. Is that going to help a lot your move at General Motors over to electric vehicles? 
Well, I absolutely think so. I think understanding EVs, understanding the importance, and really we have to work together. Business and governments need to work together to make sure we have a whole ecosystem that encourages EV adoption. We need to make sure there's the right charging, and that's why the you know the work going on for infrastructure is so important. So we're having regular conversations with members of the administration as well as members of Congress to make sure they understand all the pieces that need to come together to support an all-EV future. Finally, Mary, we all watch the Super Bowl. We watch Will Ferrell. And I guess my main question is, what have you got against Norway? There seems to be some grudge with Norway here. Well, I think, you know, when you look at Norway, they've had the highest EV adoption. And so I think it's driving awareness. Um, we're really um, pleased with the ad. It, it resonated across so many, so many groups, but, you know, especially uh, uh, millennials and how they uh, look at the future. And to drive that awareness, we think is really important. And I'm uh, virtually 100 percent Finnish, so I have a, a, a natural uh, affiliation with the Scandinavian countries. But uh, it's more highlighting what Norway's done. And, and making sure people understand um, that EVs are a very important part of our future. And I'm a quarter Swedish, so it was satisfying to know that Will Feller actually ended up in Sweden at the end of the end. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Mary. Always great to talk to you. That's Mary Barr. She is chairman and CEO of General Motors. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.